Lord God, as we attend again to one of the stories from the book of the Acts, we ask that you would give us uh, discernment and insight to understand what's going on, but also that you'd give us hearts and wills to obey your leading and face our own responsibilities. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I promise you, he said, looking at the clock, I promise you not more than uh, seven or eight points uh, this evening. I, I, I'm curious to know, uh, it, it, it doesn't matter very much, but I am just curious. Can you put your hand up if you were here last week at this time? I don't mean in church. Okay, that is helpful, because it tells me that actually not many of you were. The story before this is the story... Oh, by the way, yes, we're on page um, uh, 1105. Uh, The story before this is the story, many of you will know it, of the letting down of a sheet in Peter's vision, in which there were all kinds of animals. God says to him, um, uh, up, Peter, kill and eat. He says, I can't do that. And God uses that vision to let him know, and then... Uh, eventually Cornelius, the centurion, uh, that actually the Gentiles are now uh, in uh, with the people of God. Quick summary. Now, we begin today on a slightly different version of a similar story. First of all, we go back before uh, the uh, uh, Cornelius story. Verse 19, those who'd been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen. You remember Stephen was martyred. And uh, after the martyrdom of Stephen, there was tremendous persecution. uh, And uh, the followers of Jesus were scattered. And here we learn they were scattered as far as Phoenicia. That's the strip on the coast. uh, Sort of south Israel, Palestine, and a bit north. Cyprus and Antioch. Antioch is in Syria, still there. uh, No, it's now in Turkey. Um, but it's the bit of Turkey you would think was Syria until you looked at a map very closely. It's called Antakya, and it's on the, um, the northern coast of the strip that you probably, like me, think Israel and Palestine is on. So if you imagine going up that strip, you've got Israel, then you've got Lebanon, then you've got uh, Syria for a bit, and you still get a little bit of Turkey before it turns. It's still there, Antakya. At this time, it was absolutely massive, It had 500,000 people in it, at least, possibly 800,000. It was a huge city. We're not talking Norwich. Um, uh, And uh, there are people who travel from uh, Phoenicia and Cyprus, as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. And they told the message, according to verse 19, to the Jews that they encountered in the different synagogues as they went. But... Uh, Along with that, there were then some who came from Cyprus and Cyrene. Cyrene is the kind of eastern bit of what's now Libya. Um, Perhaps because they came from further away, perhaps because they were more used to operating in an environment that had Greeks and Gentiles in it. And they said, actually, do we need to tell the story only to Jewish people in synagogues? Why don't we tell it to everyone? They told it to everyone. They told it to other Gentiles. Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem, has already realized at the end of our last story that uh, the gospel is now for Gentile people. Great, they say. Uh, And they sit on that great, and they sit on that great, 
They sit on it. 14 years later, they still haven't done anything about it. Don't know what that says about the church in Jerusalem, but we're 14 years on now from the day of Pentecost, at least maybe 17 years, and um, they haven't sent out a Gentile mission. They've not taken responsibility for uh, doing very much at all in respect to the Gentiles, though they're terribly happy, according to the end of uh, the last uh, story in, in verse 18, that the, the, uh, the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is for Gentiles. So uh, the danger of the book of the Acts is because it moves at a certain pace, we kind of forget that there are big gaps. So this is 14 years, maybe more, after the day of Pentecost now, in which our story opens. They hear in Jerusalem what is going on in this uh, vast city of Antioch, as people are turning to the good news of Jesus, having had an embassy of messages from those who've come from Cyrene, from North Africa, and from Cyprus. What do they do? Well, the first thing that's marvellous is that, despite the fact they haven't done anything about it themselves for 14 years, they don't say, I say this is a bit much. Uh, we can't, we can't, we can't, I mean, imagine if they were English. Well, we can't have all these people, out, these kind of ruffians, out at, um, uh, out at Antioch um, uh, proclaiming the good news. I mean, it's, it's just not, it's not, not on. We haven't sent them, we haven't uh, authorised them, we haven't given them uniforms. Um, it's just not right. That's what they said if they were English, but they're not English, fortunately. Um, they're Jewish and they're sitting in Jerusalem, and they say, well, that's great, but we would just like to check what's going on, so we'll send them someone. And, and tonight what I really want to do is to divide. It's, it's kind of two and a bit points, I suppose, if that gives you any consolation. The first of those is what do the leaders do in this story? I'm not going to dwell on the whole issue of the gospel being open to the Gentiles because we were there last week, and if you weren't here, then catch up. But um, I really want to ask the question, what do the leaders do in this story? And the first thing they do is they monitor what is going on. It was a stroke of genius that they sent Barnabas. Barnabas comes from Cyprus. So he's got credibility with those who've gone from Cyprus to take the message to Antioch. Ah, yes, Barnabas, we know Barnabas. Barnabas is one of us, but he's also a Jew. So he's got credibility with the Jews in the Jerusalem from whom the gospel has originally spread out. Uh, not only was he a Jew, he was a Levite, so he was pretty high up, pretty high status uh, in the Jewish world of the time. We first learn of him very early on, as he is converted and uh, he sells property, and we're told that he comes and lays the results at the feet of the apostles in Jerusalem. Then later on, when he's uh, in Jerusalem, he hears about this guy, uh, Saul, become Paul, who's been converted, and Paul turns up in Jerusalem, and the um, uh, Jerusalem church um, has a fit of the wobblies, and says, well, we've heard about this, Paul, he's persecuting everyone he comes comes, uh, up against, Uh, we really don't want to see him. And Barnabas goes and grabs Paul and says, let me take you to the guys at the Jerusalem church, and uh, he says, look, Jerusalem church, look at Paul, this is Paul, let me introduce you, Uh, it's okay, you can be nice to each other. That's Barnabas' ministry up to this point in Acts, is helping people who may not have got on uh, to get on. So it's a brilliant choice for someone to send to Antioch where they're not quite sure what might be going on. He, uh, he goes to monitor the situation, he gets there and he encourages them 
uh, to uh, continue in the grace of God. His name means Bar Nabash, son of encouragement, and the, uh, Luke, writing the book of Acts, tells us he does exactly that. He encourages them. He evangelizes. He was a man uh, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and uh, great numbers turn to the Lord. And then, after a while, he thinks this through and says, I need help here. I remember that chap, Saul, that I once introduced to those guys in Jerusalem. I wonder if I can find him. And he goes and finds Saul in Tarsus. Now, um, my wife's just acquired um, an iPhone. And um, I think a phone is a phone. Um, silly of me, I know. But um, Natalie is just over the moon and really excited about all these things, all these apps you can get. Um, Barnabas did not have an app, a, a GPS or system or anything for finding Saul. It's mind-boggling difficult to me to imagine that he, he had at least two days' journey, uh, some of that ac- across that bit that, that does that at the top northeast corner of the Mediterranean, um, uh, possibly three, and then he'd have landed up in, uh, in uh, Tarsus, which was like a huge university city. Um, how was he going to find Saul? We have no idea. We know I didn't know how he found him. By this point, according to what uh, Paul tells us in a later story, uh, Paul has spent three years uh, telling the story of Jesus through Syria and Cilicia, which is now part of Turkey. And um, it looks like this is the period in which he suffers the most in terms of being beaten up. So he's been on his own. I have no idea how Barnabas finds him. We're not told. But he finds Saul. And he says, come on, I've got a job for you. And he takes him uh, back to Antioch. And there, for a year, they teach together. Again, it's one of the the aspects of these stories in the Acts that it kind of whizzes past us. So it's worth registering that a whole year they stay just teaching this new church. So, what do the leaders do? They monitor, they send Barnabas, who encourages, who evangelizes, who goes to find Saul, and he, with Saul, Paul, teach the new church for a year. Finally, the uh, church in Jerusalem was probably responsible for the sending of someone else, Agabus. There were a number of prophets, you'll see in verse... I don't know... um, Where's the prophets gone? Here we are. Um, yes, 27. Agabus and some prophets uh, come down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And Agabus, through the Spirit, uh, prophesies a great famine that's going to take over the known world at that time. And it was time of the Emperor Claudius. We don't, uh, we don't have records of a famine throughout the, known, the Roman world at that point. But we do have a record that during the time of Claudius, there was always famine, significant famine, on somewhere. And through the ministry of Agabus, they get to know about this famine and to think about what to do about it. So the leaders in Jerusalem are responsible one way or another for a great deal that's gone on. Barnabas, I guess, has already become a leader at this point. Certainly later on in the story of Acts, when he gets sent somewhere else, he was one of the leaders making the decision. And I guess the same was true in Jerusalem. 
The leaders do a great deal, but when you look at the whole story, it feels more like they are engineers in charge of a mighty engine. It needs to run well. It needs fuel. It needs lubricating oil. It needs parts. And they provide the teaching, the encouragement, the people. But they, the leaders, are not the engine. They keep the engine running true. So, uh, uh, verse 23, Barnabas, when he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. It's part of this engine that just runs smoothly, runs true. But the engine itself, what's that? Well, it's you. It's the disciples. It's the followers. What do the leaders do? Now, what do the disciples do? Well, we say of those, don't we, who have integrity, that they put their money where their mouth is. And these disciples engaged both mouth and money. They put their money where their mouth was. First, the mouth. Persecuted, after the um, martyrdom of Stephen, they'd spread far and wide. And they had told their story now over many years. I don't know, is it easier or is it harder to tell your story in a new place? And what they told was the story of the Lord Jesus. Now that's a careful title in, uh, in the book of the Acts. Not Jesus Christ, but the Lord Jesus This was in a Roman imperial world in which everyone knew that the great acclamation at all times is Caesar is the Lord. The Lord is Caesar. So to proclaim that Jesus is the Lord is actually revolutionary. It's not just spiritual and religious. It's revolutionary. And that's the message they had. There is another Lord than the one you know about. Not the Roman emperor, but the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is changing, then, to fit new circumstances. In in a Jewish situation, you say, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, the one who's promised that fits in with all your scriptures. Now they're talking about the Lord Jesus. He's still the same person, but by the way, he actually takes the place of the Roman emperor. And they are the ones who take responsibility, according to our story tonight, for telling of the Lord, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. They dealt with the mouth, but then they dealt with money. In response to Agabus, they decide to provide help. Now, here's a small point of interest for all you political historians out there, of whom I know there are so many. In chapter 2 and chapter 4, the church gave, quote, to anyone as he had need. Here, in this story, they give, quote, each according to his ability, unquote. Does that sound familiar at all? From each according to his ability to each according to his need. It was popularized by Marx, but actually turns up uh, many years earlier in a French guy called Louis Blanc. And I wonder whether there is any connection, whether 
in the very early years of socialism, there was some memory, some folk memory, of this knowledge that in the earliest days of the church of God, each gave according to his ability, to each according to his need. And the issue of this gift is massively important, much more so than we would recognize it. We think it's nice, but it's not just nice. It's not just because it's historically accurate, but because it resonates with the issue that's going on through these chapters. The, The issue of the Jew and the Gentile. In the Roman and the Greek pagan world, giving was enormously important. And it was highly regulated socially. Uh, It it happened a great deal. But it happened with very clear strings attached. I am very rich. I stand on a podium here with enormous wealth at my disposal. There's Simon down several steps from me. And I give Simon money or goods. Uh, Simon, in return, gives me honour and respect. What a great world that was. But it is actually, of course, still a major part of Mediterranean society. If you go to World Cafe, talk to uh, Joel and Becca Callow, uh, who uh, run Friends International among us in Norwich at the moment. They've just come from being in Athens. And if you hear on the news all the stories of the Greek economy, they will tell you that half the problem in Greece remains this sense of a, a, a patronage tribal world in which uh, you don't give the government any money, and money is for spreading around in your own personal world, where you know where it's going and you know what you'll get back in return, the honour and respect. But Jewish society was completely different from all of that. Everyone, everything belonged to God. It was laid out. You gave because it was the law, and it was the law because, in God's eyes, everyone was equal. Everyone was held in equal regard. No one was better than another. Massively different from the pagan world. Now, So far in this book, we've seen the, the Gentile church just beginning to pull away a bit from the Jewish original. The food laws have gone. We, we heard that last week. The rituals are going. And our gospel story uh, told of Jesus uh, in John chapter 7. He keeps the law, but he keeps it along the grain of God's intention for life and flourishing. He's not obsessive about the law of Moses. So it was incredibly important that this new thing, this new idea, a church, didn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. It didn't adopt a Gentile model of giving. What this story does is it tells the church in Jerusalem that there is another church that cares for them practically, and that was presumably great news, but it also tells them that they've not thrown away the moral law, the moral obligations that go with being God's people. They haven't paganized. When Paul is in Jerusalem, uh, we learn from his letter to Galatia, that the church there urged him to remember the poor. Why? Not just because they were nice, though we hope they were, but because they were Jewish. This new gathering, if they were to maintain any kind of claim that this is now the continuing people of God, they had to behave with not less love toward the needy 
than the Jewish community had shown. So this is a big signal being laid down. It's not about niceness. It's not about, okay, that's nice. Let's take up a collection and bung them some money. This is, you need to know we are not less the people of God than you are. Last week, I said that the story of the conversion of Cornelius invited us to put ourselves into the story. We might find ourselves with the Jerusalem church, uh, but far away. If with the Jerusalem church, then we can say, well, that's nice. God has granted the uh, Gentiles repentance. But I also suggested that we might put ourselves instead in the place of Peter. The moment he sees that the Gentiles are acceptable to God. And he says, I now see that the Gentiles are acceptable, so let me tell you the good news of Jesus. The message was not so much how good that the Gentiles can come in, though it ends on that note, but ah, now I see they are in, I must tell them the good news of Jesus. That was a week ago. I suppose in the terms of this passage tonight, I'm a leader, but just like Barnabas, who also evangelizes, because he's a disciple of the Lord, I am also a disciple. And in terms of the message last week, uh, do we go, we must go, I can ask, have you gone? I haven't. I've been to three church evening meetings this week and three daytime ones. I'm sure they've been enormously important. I have planned and I have prepped and I have pastored but I haven't gone. Along with studies and along with the business of the church in the next year, without the staffing that we've had, uh, I have to find a way, I know, to clear more of my diary so that I can go. And what about you? Have you gone? Have you gone and told? Or did you make a mental note that you really must do some going and telling one day? See, what, what this story tells to me is that it was the disciples, it was you guys, who were the ones that started telling the good news. You didn't apply to Jerusalem for a form in triplicate, asking for permission to go and tell. You didn't say, I couldn't possibly do it because I haven't been adequately resourced. They just did it. They started telling the good news. And I think this division of labor matters very much. No doubt there are some things that are particular to this moment and this location in this uh, part of Acts. And no doubt there are gifts and ministries to consider and the way that the Holy Spirit distributes his gifts, not least prophecy. But at the heart, there is such a clear opportunity by the time you hit verse 19, after verse 18 of chapter 11, for a top-down model of church life, where Jerusalem says this is how it's going to be. And it is nowhere to be seen. The leaders lead, and they keep the engine doing what it should. Their role is necessary, but it's the disciples that make the difference. We're wondering whether uh, Christianity explored and that kind of model may have run its course among us, and whether what we ought to be doing is thinking about resourcing uh, members of the church to to be more uh, alert to possibilities of individual material that you could take your friends with, take your friends through. Do you know your friends and their lives? 
Do you know the gospel so that it keys into their life? Um, as you leave this evening, have a look at the uh, material on the stand there about the story sacks. Um, we did it in a major way this morning. Story sacks, stuff we do with really young children, um, with kind of goodies in the sack that you take out and you start to tell the story as, as things emerge from the, from the bag. Beautifully designed. Um, uh, but what really gets me, and the genius of it, is that it's not speaking alien. It's not speaking to very young children from the planet Zog, because very young children are actually used these days to having story sacks. It's a very common way of telling stories that they're familiar with in schools and in libraries. So the format is what they're familiar with. But with that format, we tell stories of Jesus. And that's what I love about the mission strategy. It doesn't overlay with with completely incomprehensible jargon, uh, material that the children will never understand. It begins where they are, and then keys in, fitting something together. Do you know the gospel in such a way that you can look at the lives of your friends and see how does that key into them? If they're Jewish, does it matter that Jesus is Messiah? If they're pagans, does it matter that Jesus is Lord? What's the equivalent in our society? Have you thought it through? We can't do it all uh, from here. It actually depends on each one of us doing it uh, for our own friends. Most of us seem to take responsibility for our money. Not many of you have sold houses and come and lain the, uh, the profits from the sale of those houses at my feet. Obviously, a few have, uh, but not many. But do we take responsibility for our mouth? We take responsibility for the money, but what about the mouth? I know full well that I'm not alone, that I didn't go last week. So do we all take responsibility for thinking through to whom should I go? What lives should I learn about? What genuine care should I show? What am I doing to make sure that if I'm not doing it next week, I will be ready by September? And I think of a story I heard this morning from one of you who's actually here tonight too, where I think, actually, yes, that person is doing it. That person is keyed into the life of those they work among in such a way that there is a natural entrance for the gospel when that moment comes to speak. Are we all doing it? If Jesus comes back, will he find us taking responsibility for putting our mouths and our money in the same place, in the service of telling the good news, so that those who are told become the people of God, to whom we then offer that other service of kindness and compassion with our material goods? Both are needed, and both the the work of the disciples and the work of the leaders are needed for a spiritually alive church to do the business to which God has called us. Let's pray together. And I suppose, really, the the way perhaps best to use this prayer time is simply to to leave some silence in which you can... uh, Review before God the week that lies in front of you. Where are there the spaces in which the good news can be told? 
Where are there the opportunities in which compassion and kindness can be offered? Are you suddenly struck with the thought that you haven't even looked at next week yet or prayed about it? Well, it's a good moment. Lord God, may we so know the Lord Jesus Christ and so be sure of the difference he makes that we may have uh, and take opportunity to speak of him, to tell of him in lives that may be very different from our own. May we interpret the life of Jesus into the lives of those we care about. That, as we hear three times in our reading tonight, a great number turned to the Lord. Amen.